All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How's it going? Are you okay? Is everybody all right? I mean, are we hanging in as it gets hotter and hotter and hotter? I, you know, I, again, don't want to sound uh, selfish or detached or condescending or uh, judgmental, but I could not be happier to not have children. I had nothing against them, just never thought about it. And now, I I don't know, they're going to have to, hopefully, in a couple generations, these children could uh, somehow evolve into cold-blooded animals, perhaps with scales, something survivable in the uh, climate as we uh, enter the end times. But uh, I am sorry. Is this too much? How are you? Happy Monday. <laughs> I, I think I'm just overcompensating in some way. My uh, my cat, as you know, Monkey, the old asshole. That's not true. Monkey is actually not an asshole. Monkey is a sweetheart. He's nervous. Definitely not an asshole. La Fonda is a bit uh, of an unpredictable, I would say, borderline personality cat. And uh, and Buster is a, a bit of an asshole. But Monkey is kind of an old sweet guy that's just a little nervous. And as some of you know who listen, he has hyperthyroid. I'm, I'm glad I diagnosed him or I, I got him to the vet to find out. No kidney disease, no uh, kidney failure, no diabetes. He's 15 years old and change. And he's got hyperthyroid. And I had uh, a few options. I went with the pills. And generally, you know, most people are like, how are you going to give pills to a cat? You know, there are these things called pill pockets, which fucking work. I even snuck one into a piece of uh, chicken today. But he's on to a day, and there was a couple of days there where I was like, oh, shit, I think he's going down. He was, like, lethargic. He was kind of pukey, did not seem happy in any way, and he was still he's thin as fuck. And I'm like, well, this is it, and I'm just going to have to deal with this. Either he's going to die on his own or I'm going to have to do it. And that's I think maybe that's how I'm overcompensating. But my cats are getting old and my parents are getting old and something's got to give. But I do know as hard as it is to have children as they grow up. And you know, as I talk to my peers with children, it's never it's never a great story. It's usually half a great story. You know, uh, yeah, the one's great, but we kind of. The other one kind of got away from us. And, uh, you know, I, I think I've said that before. But, you know, with the cats, they remain pretty consistent. And if they live a long time, they can live anywhere from 15 to 25 years, I think. But they still they stay pretty steady. But as difficult as it is to have kids, the best you can hope for with a cat is that it'll get to the point where you can voluntarily say, this cat has had enough. I'm going to I'm going to put it down. And that's a decision you have to make about something you love. You know, I know it's hard to have kids, but like, you know, eventually, not probably not not too long, I'm going to have to put my cat down. And I understand your kid's 17 and having some issues, but uh, my cat is 16 and I'm going to have to kill it. So, you know, spare me the sad story is what I'm saying. Okay, false equivalence, but I, I'm just dealing with it. You know, I, I'm dealing with the fact that yeah, my cats are getting old. I'm getting old. My parents are getting old. I think I might have to put my dad down. Can you do that? I don't think you can do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can do it in some states. Not exactly, but wouldn't it be easier? You know, I mean, to to be able to just sort of, 
I got to put him down. My my dad's getting, he's 80 and, you know, he's still got most of his marbles and stuff, but he's not happy and he's having a hard time walking. And I just, I don't know if his quality of life is holding up. So I, I'd like to put him down. Yeah, no, I don't think he can do that in any state. Maybe if I brought him to the vet, maybe just bring him in. Yeah, it's my dad. How you doing, doc? He's like, can I help you with anything? I'm like, yeah, my, I just want to put my dad down. My dad's like, what are we doing? I just want, I want you to meet my vet. Can we put him down? I mean, can't you tell? He's not having great quality of life. No, I can't. I, I, we don't do that. We can't put people down. I don't know. I think I think that maybe you can make an exception. I'll be there. I'll, I'll hold him while you do it, and it'll be all right. I'll hold him and pet his head, and uh, I think we're good. My father's like, what are we doing? I'm like, it's over, Dad. It's over. Is that too dark, too cynical? Wouldn't it be easier? Uh, and at this point, I, I kind of am okay with my dad. I'm just looking out for him. I, I just think people, maybe we should look into that. Maybe we could... You know, put our parents down when it's necessary. You know, and sadly, uh, some people have done that. It's usually not like that. It's an uh, it's an unplugging situation. But hey, happy Monday! Did I mention Argus Hamilton is on the show? Finally, Argus Hamilton is here. Quick email. Uh, this is from Eileen. Subject line, competition and conflict and shutting that shit down. Mark, thank you for your generalization of who your people are. I literally had to put my mascara down to laugh as you listed off all of my traits. I I say generally that I don't have a demographic. I have a disposition. They're usually sensitive, aggravated, creative types. Uh, and I I assume that's what she's talking about. She goes on to say, I've tried to explain to my buff bartender younger brother by 12 years why Mark Maron is my guy, and please stop telling me to listen to Joe Rogan. He acts like it's a competition. Of course he does, in parentheses, and I'm more of the type that puts competition and conflict in the same mental bucket, not my jam. That's why I like to shut it down by saying, Mark got Obama. Totally works. Okay, back to getting ready. Love, Eileen. P.S. Come to Phoenix. Eileen, I was in Phoenix. Oh, you're right. I'm probably due for a trip back to Phoenix. Thank you for the uh, email. I understand what you're saying. Look, I run a show here. I'm the same way. I think that there's part of me that naturally competes, but I think there's something about this culture, uh, certainly some people within it, certainly because of uh, the kind of um, frenetic, uh, compulsive social media landscape that people are always trying to engage people and trying to you know put things against one another even if but you know obviously you know joe's people are going to be competitive i mean he's a competitive guy he's a sports guy everything's all right i'm just i'm at a point in my life where it's like i do what i do i got my people i make a living it's fine and i'm good you hear that i'm good but i appreciate the email Today, Argus Hamilton is here, and he's been mentioned quite a bit over the uh, history of the show. You know, before I get into that, I just want to say I want to say thank you to the people that came out to uh, the Dynasty typewriter last night. It's it's a small, intense little room, but I'm working stuff out. It's amazing how long I've been working this material because I originally put it together because I took a gig at the New York Comedy Festival a year ago um, for the Beacon Theater, and then you know the special came later. And now I've been honing and kind of crafting other pieces and you know different parts of it but it's been a long while over a year that i've been working this stuff and i i am ready to dump it i'm and i went down and looked at the theater uh where i'm going to be doing the special it's going to be a different look for a special really this is a, a fairly classic large black box theater 
It's not one of these proscenium theaters, one of these vaudeville houses, one of these places where you see all the specials shot. And this kind of fluke kind of might have worked in our benefit that we we have full control over how the thing's going to look and how we're going to lay it out and the vibe. And it's pretty exciting. And it's going to be a relatively small house in terms of crowd size, a couple hundred each show and very intimate. So I'm excited. I went down to the tech meeting and the set's looking good and it's going to be it's going to be a unique show. Still considering calling it Jeremiah, which is not an upbeat title. I don't know. I think it's a pretty upbeat show. It's an honest show about where we are in the world right now, maybe where I'm at in my life right now. And it's definitely funny. Some of the best funny I've generated in my all my years of funny. But uh, I'm excited about that. So... Argus Hamilton. Who is he? Why do you know him? Why does it ring a bell? Argus Hamilton has is a mainstay at the Comedy Store. He's been there since the beginning of the Comedy Store, pretty much. He was there for the strike. He was there to get screwed up on drugs. He was there for to date Mitzi for years. There's mythology about him. He's mentioned by almost everybody. He's one of the few comics of his generation. I think probably the only one that still does spots at the store, that can still do spots at the store. I'm going to ask him how that happened. But most notoriously, you know, I when I got to the store in the 80s when I worked the door there and I got fucked up on drugs, he was sort of this mythic being that you heard about. I lived up in Crest Hill, which was a house that uh, Mitzi owned behind the store. She didn't live there. She rented it out to comics. There was a picture of him on the wall up there because he used to live there, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. I talked to him about that, of him on The Tonight Show. You know, he'd done like so many Tonight Shows. He was like an heir apparent. He was the guy. And it was just like one of those cautionary tales, not even a cautionary tale, just a fucking, you know, bottom hitting mythology, a bottom hitting myth of this guy. When I got there in the 80s, you know, he was just notorious as this insane drug person, but this guy from Oklahoma, you know, like a, almost like a Will Rogers type of dude. And uh, he just, it all went south because of Coke and booze. And he came back from rehab when I was at the store. And I just, I'll talk to him about that too. But for those of you who've been following along, you know, this show for the last decade, The intention of this show was for me to reconnect with comics and to connect with comics and to talk honestly with comics. And obviously because of the place the comedy store held in my mind and in my heart and in my soul, you know, I was mildly obsessed with kind of getting the history of that place. And Argus has always been elusive. He's always been around. And I was a little nervous about it. I didn't know what was in there or what was going on or, you know, what's that guy made out of. I just, I still see him. I follow him. You know, most of the time when I do the comedy store, because I like doing the fourth or fifth spot, keep it early. And he's, he's always doing the second or third spot. And he brings me up on stage more so than not when I work at the store. And he's been there forever. And and I never knew. I just didn't know what was in there. And I remember years ago, I said, when can I talk to you? Because I think you're an important part of it. And he said, uh, I can't do it while Mitzi's still alive. I won't do it. Out of respect. Well, she's dead, and and I and he wanted to do it, so we got to do it. Now, one of the things we get to clear up. How you doing, everybody? All right. 
One of the things we get to clear up is, you know, for years, the story was that Sam Kennison, you know, the reason he got spots at the store or was able to manage the Westwood store, the comedy store in Westwood, Mitzi opened there, was because he saved Mitzi's life because Argus Hamilton, my guest today, was choking her in the parking lot of the comedy store. And Sam Kennison pulled Argus off of her, saved her, and that sealed the deal with his place at the comedy store. That you know, she owed him a life and you know gave him, you know, the Westwood store and, and that's how that was that's part of the mythology. Now mythology kind of happens pretty quickly at the comedy store. I don't know if it's just the nature of the dark den of comics, just the the sort of uh, frenetic, weird kind of competitive insecurity and darkness that the comic community has and then that place, but it, it, it happens immediately, even on the managerial side. I mean, Jesus Christ, I've got this driver's license, Mitzi's driver's license that I found on the floor during the shooting of the documentary that Mike Binder's making, and I took it and then I okayed it with Mitzi's son Peter, and you know I have it here, and it's very important to me. It's me. It has a lot of meaning to me, and I'm looking at it right now. And once I talked about it, the manager over there, Eric, at the Just for Last festival, started saying that I stole Mitzi's driver's license from her purse. And all of a sudden, someone comes up to me who I don't even know. I heard you stole Mitzi's driver's license from her purse. I'm like, what the? How the fuck does that even happen? If there's just something about the comedy store that churns out. I guess it's not unlike any den of evil, insecure fuckers like uh, the Republican Party and conspiracy theories. It's just that's the title pool of conspiracy theories and uh, bullshit mythology is just a festering insecurity among vindictive, competitive fuckers. That's where it comes from. But anyways, long story longer, I'm able to talk about this story with Argus and you know many people have mentioned Argus on this show and many a few people have mentioned that story this is actually Robin Williams mentioning it in my talk with him years ago that was the crazy times because Sam you know Sam's first night up was just I remember seeing who's the guy screaming yeah and supposedly Sam got on because he he rescued Mitzi from Argus right it was Argus Hamilton who was strangling her in some sort of drunk frenzy and then get away yeah yeah <laughs> sam rescued her and then they put sam on all right so that was robin williams and this is part of the mythology but you know there's a bigger story here about the comedy store about argus's place in it and it's not just about him supposedly choking mitzi you know this guy is a veteran he's still at it he still gets big laughs he's still at the comedy store every weekend and uh and he has been since the since the 70s you know and, and he is almost the singular presence of that generation at that place, holding up that end of it. And uh, and it's taken years for me to get him in here. And this is me talking to uh, Argus Hamilton. And you can listen to Argus or watch him, actually. He's got a talk show called uh, The Comedy Store Tonight. It's on YouTube. You can watch new episodes every Tuesday night. Plus, the old episodes are up right now. They're up there now. I believe it goes live on Tuesdays. But this is me talking to Argus Hamilton. Argus Hamilton. Nice to see you, buddy. Nice to see you. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Mark. Yeah, it's yes, a real sir. pleasure. Sure, man. I, you know, we were wait. I, it, it seemed like it was destined to happen at some point, but it, there was a, a moment there 
a while back where I was like, let's do it. Let's talk. And you're like, you couldn't do it uh, with Mitzi still alive. You literally said that, that I can't do it while she's still alive. Well, uh, I appreciate the ride out here this morning because I got to come by Forest Lawn Drive and Mount Sinai Cemetery and got to wave to her up at the top of the hill. Oh, is that where she's buried? So she's still on my ass about coming here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, well... I don't think she is. I'm kidding. She <laughs> she loved you. She loves us all. I don't know. Yeah, I guess she loved me. You know, it's weird. When I got to the store, it, you know, my recollections of you, because I didn't spend that long a time. I wasn't at the comedy store that long the first time. What year? Well, I think I got there. When I was there, I'd gotten there and I was working the door. And uh, I remember it was actually probably, it was like, it, it, when did you get out of rehab? You got out of rehab when I was there. Eighty uh, six. I went in in November of 86, 28 days at Betty Ford, and then 90 days in Scottsdale. I arrived back in L.A. with six months of sobriety in April of 87. Yeah, so that's that's where that's where I first saw you. Okay. Because I'll- I remember Belzer, uh, we were out on the, on the patio, and Belzer saw you walking up, and he goes, is this an apparition? <laughs> <laughs> they can't kill me. They never could. <laughs> And I remember because uh, it was weird, these weird memories, because I was all fucked up on drugs and right. doing blow, and we had gotten these like little vitamin B squirty things that you could put in your nose. Oh, yeah. And I remember offering you one, and you're like, I'm not putting anything in my nose <laughs> ever again. <laughs> but it, I was, my, my nasal hairs would, would experience euphoric recall. <laughs> that sure they would, yeah. I lived in Crest Hill, and there was pictures of you up there on The Tonight Show at, in Crest Hill, in the house where right. I was living. And I didn't know who you were, and I didn't like know the whole history of things. And then uh, the weird thing about this comedy store is that you start picking up little bits and pieces of the mythology, right? So I was hanging, just spending a lot of time with Kennison, right? Right, and there was the 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 sort of the idea was the the, the story the the existing myth was that. He pulled you off of Mitzi right. when you were attacking her. Right. And because of that, he was able to manage uh, Westwood. Yeah. Is that the story? Total crock, of course. <laughs> <laughs> that requires... Well, let's go back. Let's lead up to it. All right. So when did you get to L.A. to, to begin with? Uh, right out of the University of Oklahoma. I came out uh, March of 76. So you're from Oklahoma? Yes. And and your your parents, your family's in the preaching racket? Yeah, my father's a preaching racket. Yeah, the son, grandson, and great-grandson of Methodist uh, ministers. Really? Yeah. How does a Methodist minister approach the ministry? Uh, it's Church of England, just like the Episcopal Church. Uh-huh. They are the uh, they are sister churches, and uh, they're about to reunite. Uh-huh. But it's very mainline, very conservative, very traditional, upper middle class, high class. Oh, so it's not Protestant, not fire and brimstone. No, not like Kennison. No. Not that group from Oklahoma. No, not that group at all. (laughs) There's country club Protestants, and then there's salt of the earth. Right. And then there's the Baptists. The Baptists. Yeah, the Cromwell's army. Yeah. uh, Since 1640s, uh, the enemy of the Hamiltons and the Cavaliers Mm -hmm. uh, even beheaded one of my ancestors. Oh, really? The uh, day before they beheaded King Charles I. Really? Yeah. So you tracked your genealogy back that far? Oh, way farther than that. We married into the House of Stuart in 1487. How'd you find all that stuff out? 
my grandmother and father tipped me off to it, and then people have, have let me know, and then genealogists have tracked my family line. I've, Why? I, Why I, your family? I've, well, the Hamiltons are a very. We've got twenty-eight Hamiltons in the House of Lords. Okay, it's a very oh, okay. noble English family. Is Alexander Hamilton of it? Yeah, he's a cousin of mine. We're <laughs> from the same Ambuskeen line from the Duke of Hamilton. Uh-huh. Uh, however, if, if he is a Hamilton, now, yeah. he, there's a, the chance he was a Stevens because he looked just like a Stevens, and his mother slept around. But he's believed to have been a Hamilton. Uh-huh. And uh, but he was the black sheep of the family because he fought for Washington. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Against the king. The king. Yeah. Right. So all right. So you grew up there with big family? No, no. Just In a brother and sister. That's it. Yeah. And so your father's a minister, your grandfather's a minister. So you spend like growing up, you, you're at the church. You're working. My, well, my you... great grandfather owned a huge plantation in Alabama, uh, but during the Civil War, right in the middle of the Battle of Shiloh, he made a deal with the Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that's how we got into the ministry. Oh, really? yeah. <laughs> Did he lose the plantation? Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he lost it all. Forty right. thousand acres on on the Tennessee River. Uh, he gave 20,000 acres to the town, and it was named Hamilton, Alabama, and is still on U.S. 78 between Birmingham and Memphis. It's still called Hamilton? Yeah. And that's your great-grandfather? Great-great. Yeah. Yeah, after John Hamilton. What did, did your brother, uh, there, you have a brother and sister? Uh-huh. Did they end up in the church? Yeah, my brother ended up in the ministry, and my sister is a president of a computer company. Oh, wow. Yeah. Here in town? Or, no, 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 in... Uh, Washington State. And you got family in Oklahoma still? No, not anymore. No one's there. No uh, reason to go back. No, no, I go back a lot for uh, corporate events. And uh-huh. uh, there's a brand new big club opening up in Bricktown that's uh, about a 350-seater that really? you might be hearing about. Yeah. Really? Yeah. In Bricktown, where's that? It's a renovated area. You know how a lot of cities it's, have renovated yeah, sure, areas? Sure. This is the one in Oklahoma City, and it's just beautiful along the, the river there. I, I, I did a gig in uh, in Oklahoma City uh, uh, once, and it was... I, Jokers? No, it wasn't It wasn't a comedy club. I did a little theater thing. Somebody brought me out there for some reason. It was a great crowd, though, wasn't it? Yeah, no, I like it. Yeah, I like it. And there's some there's some uh, freaky people out in Oklahoma. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up in New Mexico. There, were, you know, we have. I think we share a corner with Oklahoma. Yeah. It, don't we? Doesn't New Mexico up there on the northeast it, side have a little piece of the Panhandle? Something up there in the Panhandle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's really mo- the Panhandle is more like New Mexico than it is Oklahoma. All right. So now, what what was the plan in college? So you you're you're in college. You're at Oklahoma State. No, you, no, no. Oklahoma University. Oh, Oklahoma University. Oh yes. Big you, you know you're not going to go into the ministry. Yeah. And how do you? end up like when is the decision to do comedy why because like you're you're the only guy of your generation that seems to be able to work at the store anymore like and i know there's politics around that or whatever but you're the only one left man well to answer your first question yeah uh since the second one was an observation (laughs) the uh what i did was i went into the university of oklahoma and i had the only time I'd ever really connected, since I'm a, I'm a real alcoholic like a lot of us, uh, I only I, I, there was this time I could connect with people without alcohol, and it was when I was on stage doing what? High school, grade school. The very first time when I was on stage, I was six years old. It was the Christmas pageant in Oklahoma City. Yeah, a thousand people in the church auditorium, and I'm supposed to walk out there with the angels and the 
shepherds and sure. everybody and the yeah. tableau, and I'm supposed to sing a cappella away <laughs> yeah. in a manger. But I'd heard a Perry Como song on the way to church, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and I liked it better. Yeah. And I had a real good memory. So I stood before the baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph, yeah. and I opened up my arms and started singing, Ah, oh, hot diggity, dog ziggity, boom, what you do to me? Yeah, yeah. It's so new to me, what you do to me? Hot diggity, dog ziggity, boom, what you do to me? When you're holding me tight, and the crowd just went wild. Yeah, they went. Oh, he, he killed. And I got. I killed. Yeah, and I, six years old, man. Yeah. That's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah. And so the next thing I knew, my father would allow me to watch Jack Parr's monologue before I went to bed, and of course Johnny Carson's monologue later on before I went to bed. And Jack uh, Parr, yeah, he was. He kind of did uh, long form. Yes, he did. Yeah, yes, it was he good. did. But, but nevertheless. Uh, it was the introduction to the New York Society of Wit and yeah, Sparkle. Sure, sure. You know, and, and yeah, not, yeah. not Prairie, you know, grade school. And it was a great escape because I just, I, these people were smart and witty and funny, and I was determined, well, I'm that way too. Well, were you, were you growing up in Oklahoma City? Uh, yes. I was in Oklahoma City until the uh, fourth grade, and my father got promoted to a bigger church in Ponca City, Oklahoma. Mm. And Ponca City is a very wealthy old oil town, the world headquarters for Conoco. Mm-hmm. And it's very, it was very sophisticated. Yeah. So uh, I, I was never in, in that kind of situation, uh, this crystal meth redneck situation. I was never in that. No. Uh, I, uh, I, my parents didn't need a babysitter. They had me on the country club every day playing golf. Yeah, was, right. But to get back to the point about yeah. the University of Oklahoma, after going through Rush Week and mm. pledging ATO, Alpha Tau Omega just made me because we uh, we had a, a thing called good of the order at the end of our first chapter meeting after initiation. Uh-huh. And I just started talking and everybody's yeah. falling over laughing. And right. I, I thought I was pre-law. And my best friend at the time, and still, Greg Hall, an Oklahoma City oil man, came up to me, pledge brother, we've been initiated together. Yeah. He said, Argus, you're, you're not going to be a lawyer. You're a stand-up comedian. And that it, it just validated every secret thing I'd ever told myself. You know, interesting because, like, I mean, you could have used those skills as a lawyer. You could, yeah. But I had this, I had this compulsion at the time to be a campus personality. Yeah. And before you knew it, this was all during the Watergate era. Uh, I, I had a, we had the University of Oklahoma had a newspaper called the Oklahoma Daily. Yeah. Forty thousand circulation. Yeah. Everybody read it every day. There was no handhelds back then. Yeah. And I was on the editorial page two or three times a week with a column called Okie Dokie, okay, yeah. with my name. And my picture as big as the copy they gave me, yeah, yeah, okay? Yeah. And so, and it's all political humor. Yeah. It's all jokes. This is the era of the early National Lampoon. Right. There's so much freedom. Everybody's sure. just joking their butts off. Yeah. Because it's the Nixon era. High, it's uh, the high mark of political satire. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, we were with the Michael O'Donohue. Yeah, our sure. Heroes. And so... I'm doing this at the University of Oklahoma, and then every Thursday night on Campus Corner, I host a show called Trivia Night, and I pack this uh, place called Across the Street Restaurant on Campus Corner, yeah. downstairs and upstairs. They all have phones on each booth, and I ask, ask trivia questions, and if they get it right, they yeah. phone it in, I give them a free pitcher of beer, or punchlines to jokes, yeah. and stuff like this, and we really had a roaring time. So you're doing bits and stuff? Yeah, and this is all... For three years at OU uh, with Trivia Night and three and a half years with the column. So I was, I was, right. I was, I was the best known personality on OU besides the athletes. And you're writing jokes and you're, sh- and you're being on stage exactly. in a way and exactly. riffing a little exactly. bit and drinking. 
Yeah, well, sure. It's all you did in that. It was 3-2 beer. It took you forever to get drunk. 3-2, like Coors? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it Coors? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you weren't drinking hard. You know, yes, I was. <laughs> because by the time you're a junior and a senior, you discover wild turkey. And, right. Of course. Because, like, I know you talk a lot about being sober, and, and it's been a long time uh, for you. Because it sounds like once you got to L.A. and the cocaine started, that's when, you know, shifted gears. But you, it was always part of your Shifting trip. gears is a great way to put it, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Downshifting, even. <laughs> Downshifting and upshifting at the same time. You bet. Downshifting, upsnifting. So so when you graduate college, you just immediately come out here? What, how do your parents react? Well, my parents were just uh, fine with it. Uh, my my father was kind of grateful to get me out of the state, you know. <laughs> and I'm kidding. <laughs> Were you causing trouble? No, I mean, no, no. It was just uh, I, I I had a good time. Yeah, uh, and uh, I, they were tremendously tolerant of me. Uh, my mother never get arrested. My, my mother didn't know. My mother my mother wanted didn't want me to come out. She said, "What if they don't laugh yeah. at you?" And, I'm, and I've never forgotten that. <laughs> really, <laughs> when your mother says, "What if they don't laugh at you when you get out?" There? Sure. <laughs> so you you basically said to them, "Like I'm going to go be a comic." Yeah. Well, I'm going to go be what I am. Right. But you did not do any comedy outside of college bef- before no, you came out here. No. But my talisman was one afternoon, uh, one evening, I should say, yeah. at the ATO House living room. Mm. We're sitting around watching the Tonight Show. All right. This was the key. I, I, the one thing I didn't like about going into stand-up was the prospect of going to New York and freezing my ass off in the winter. I sure. hated cold weather. Yeah. Okay? And I just didn't like the idea of New York. It was a seedy t- town at that time anyway in mm-hmm. the 70s. And I'm watching The Tonight Show with a bunch of guys in the living room at the ATO house. And Sammy Davis Jr. comes on. And Johnny and Sammy always do great. Yeah. And Sammy says to Johnny, listen, Johnny. I, welcome to L.A. I know you've just gotten here, but there's this young kid I want to I want you to see tonight. I, I brought here. His name is Freddie Prinz. Yeah. And uh, Johnny said, "Let's bring him out." And so Freddie Prinz came out, brought down the house, Did and sat down. Yeah. yeah. Johnny waved him over, and uh, and Freddie Prinz sat down and started talking about this brand new place on the strip called the Comedy Store. And I said, Los Angeles has a comedy store. That's where I'm going. Oh, really? So that was, <clears throat> what year was that? I think it was the spring of 73. Oh, so it really was just starting out. Yeah, then. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when did you graduate? I graduated in January, or December of 75. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you were like, that's it, that's where I'm yeah, going. Yeah. And you didn't know how you were going to start or what you were going to do. You were just going to go out there. Yeah, Absolutely. So what'd you do? Well, I jumped into my MG Midget convertible. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and d- drove this little thing over the, the Kyber Pass <laughs> to yeah, get yeah. to Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, got into town, and uh, I, I started coming to the uh, open mic nights sur- surreptitiously yeah, on Monday night. So where'd you get the place? Where were you living first? Oh, I had a cousin who lived in Manhattan Beach. Oh, wow. And so uh, an, an older, co- older yeah. cousin. Yeah. 20 years older and uh, I, I stayed at his house for about a month while I was coming to the comedy store and getting my bearings and I went up on March 8th 1976 so happened the same night uh, Marsha Warfield went up uh-huh. right after me the, her first night yeah that was your audition yeah. night or that was the that, first that, time you that, played that, on the stage that was, first, no, that was my audition night so you'd already been coming to open mics no no uh, that launched my open mic okay got okay. it yeah 
that launch because I would go around with B.J. Douglas and Joey Gaynor all over town doing our open mics together. Where'd you meet those guys? At at the comedy store that night. Oh, okay, okay. And so uh, uh, I went on stage and uh, I stood up. I had all this all this fresh stage presence. And I yeah. Said, and I said, uh, I I just left Oklahoma. We're smoking pots of federal crime. Travel through Colorado. We're smoking pots illegal. Finally got to California where it's mandatory. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they just laughed. I said, I got my secret. Always open with a drug joke in yeah. Los Angeles. <laughs> Never yeah, failed. Yeah. Still do it to this day. Yeah. And then I, I, I struggled through a bunch of stuff. I'm talking to get jokes off Humphrey and 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 Ford and stuff like this. Did you like were you like a Mort Saul fan or what? Who was I, your I, I didn't guy? Know, I didn't know you I didn't know who I was. Okay. But, but like we, we, you decided on politics yeah, yourself. Oh yeah, yeah, well, oh I, yeah, of course. Yeah. This is what Gentiles do, or, yeah. or at least Protestants. Anyway, because we don't have enough self-honesty to talk about ourselves on stage. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, um, uh, but I got, there was something interesting because I got toward the end and I remember I picked up something. You can always kill with a drug joke in yeah. L.A. And at the time you could always kill with a Nixon joke. Yeah. Okay. Right. And it you just still so, do both. Yeah. And <laughs> at the time, Nixon had just gone to China. Yeah. This is, this is two years after he resigned, yeah. a year and a half, for some goodwill mission. And it was in all the papers. And at the end, I said, you know, why did Nixon bother taking a jet to China? Why didn't he go in a rickshaw pulled by a mule? That got a laugh. And I said, Spiro could have used the exercise. Yeah. Oh, man. They just, oh, Agnew and Nixon joke. Oh, uh, boy. Tremendous it. joke. Yeah. And two things happened from that. First of all, there was a reporter from Orbit magazine. Do you remember Orbit? I don't. It was a Sunday supplement that was in all the Sunday papers all around the country. Yeah. And it was a little mini uh, newspaper-looking magazine with yeah. color pictures and stuff uh -huh. and articles. Like the Parade magazine? Exactly like Parade. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it had a, a, an article about the comedy store, and it quoted that Nixon joke. Yeah. And my fraternity brothers read this the next Sunday in the Daily Oklahoman and thought I'd made it. Yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> you, he did it. He did it. And the second thing that happened was the most important thing that happened in my life. And uh, that is is that uh, Mitzi had Ollie Joe Prater standing by her. The great bearded Ollie Joe Prater. Mm. Our Falstaff. Our mm. Gleason. Our mm. Jackie Gleason. Yeah. You know, that's all you can say about him. The late, great Ollie Joe Prater. And he was running Comedy Store Westwood at the time uh -huh. and uh, trying to appear late at night there. And uh, she said, make him a doorman. She, to she took one look you. at me and she saw doorman. Yeah. <laughs> me too. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and, and I didn't, I, did, I wasn't sure if that was a promotion, but I me knew it was, it was my foot in the door. Right. And I didn't realize I was, I was getting admitted to graduate school. Right. That was the system. Yeah. Yeah. And, I and, started out as a doorman. But, and at that time, the comedy store was, as, as Julius Caesar would say, uh, es divisa in tres partes, divided into three parts, like yeah. Gaul. Yeah. You know, there were the TV stars, yeah. there were the draws, uh, Freddie Prinze, Gabe Kaplan, who both got their shows from the comedy Pryor. store. Pryor's that special case. Uh, and then Jimmy Walker was the big one. Yeah. Jimmy Walker packed the room on sunset on weekends and he would drive over to Westwood and pack Westwood. Both shows, both nights. When he was, every he was on what's happening? On uh, Good Times. Good Times, yeah. Good Times was on CBS 
Seven years. I just talked to Byron Allen. Yeah. yeah. He, he was a gag writer for, right. for Jimmy. When he was like <clears throat> 16. Jimmy would have Byron Allen, Jay Leno, David Letterman, and a couple of other guys, Gene yeah. uh, and Wayne Klein, yeah. uh, would have them at his house every week, pay them $100 a week. And then, this is back when Letterman was paying $117 a month rent yeah. across the street from the comedy store. Yeah. 117 a month. Yeah. Okay. All right. And... Uh, they would write all this brilliant material for Jimmy, okay? And then Jimmy would have it all on note cards. Yeah. And every night of the week, Jimmy would do his regular act except Sunday. And then Jimmy would sit on a bar stool and read these jokes. The crowd would laugh, and Jimmy would throw them over his shoulder like, okay, that was funny, that was funny, that was funny. And it's the last you would ever hear of these jokes. Really? It was the last. He would never add it to his act. That's weird. Was, he would it, pay him for him. And he never had him. He just enjoyed the company, I guess, <laughs> and, and seeing if they worked. Yeah. But that, like that time, Jimmy Walker, Freddie Prinze, Gabe Kaplan were the TV stars, yeah. guys. And then there was a group of guys that were in and out of the comedy store because they were working Vegas, you know, right on the road. Uh, Kip Adada, Steve Bluestein, Steve Landsberg, these guys that were doing really work. Didn't Kip on, just die? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he was just taking off at that time. Yeah. And he was very popular. And Steve Bluestein? Yeah, Steve Bluestein. Yeah. Brilliant comic. Yeah. And they were working. That was the other level. There were there were a lot of them at that level, but those are the ones I, off the top of sure. my head. And, and then, then there was the heart and soul of the comedy store. Okay. The heart and soul were like, were, I would say, four guys. The heart yeah. and soul. Uh, that would be Letterman, George Miller, uh, Tom Dreesen. Yeah. Oh, and Leno. Yeah. And Leno. Yeah. Okay, those four guys were there every night, and they were the ones that you gathered around. Okay, the comics, young comics. Com- the young, young comics yeah. would gather around. They were yeah. encouraging. They would, you know, suggest punchlines, give you lines, you know, and you would just laugh it up. And uh, all in different areas, you know. Letterman was like a, a god. Everybody saw future Carson in him every, yeah. at the time. And this is 76? Yeah. yeah. Uh, George Miller was doing The Tonight Show and murdering at the time, yeah. and he was just... Just and his sardonic wit height at yeah. that time. Uh, Tom Dreesen, the, the the nicest guy in the history of stand up hey, comedy. I talked to him. I talked to him. Yeah. Always there for you. Yeah. I'm always helping and giving to you. And Leno, Leno was was wasn't so much approachable, but he was he was nice to everybody. But Leno gave you the example you needed to follow if you wanted to be a success. Mm-hmm. Leno was a work junkie. Okay, work, yeah. work, work. So uh, the smart guys aped. Leno, right. Okay. So who were well? Who were the guys? You know, there were those were the guys that the comics were looking up to. So who was your little crew of weirdos? Well, uh, <laughs> I've got to I've got to add two. There were two superstars at the time too. One yeah. of them was my idol. Yeah. That was Tim Thomerson. Oh yeah, Tim, Tim Thomerson yeah. is the only guy who could follow Pryor. Yeah, he was a tremendous stage presence. Yeah, there was nothing like him before or since. Yeah, I mean he had it. Yeah, I always thought that. Uh, uh, Harrison Ford had the career Tim Thomerson should have had. How's Tim doing? Uh, uh, he's surfing. He has some back problems, but I, I hear from him from time to time. Uh-huh. He stays in touch with his good friend Letterman. Uh-huh. But Timmy was a star. Yeah. And then Richard Pryor was God. Yeah. And he would come in, and, and everything that he did is well known. Well, right. So he was like, but he, you know, he kind of. Um, <clears throat> Put that place on the map in a lot of ways, right? Because uh, he would do the weekend shows. That, that that no, that's how it's that's how it's remembered now. Yeah. But the guy that put the place on the map was Jimmy Walker. Yeah. And and Gabe Kaplan and Freddie Prince. Those uh-huh. guys got it going. Uh huh. What 
what happened to Pryor was that Pryor cracked up on stage in Las Vegas in the early 70s. Yeah. Just cracked up. Right. And Paul Mooney- He got fired, right? Yeah, well, he he yeah. lost it. Yeah. Paul Mooney is, is, is the other god. Paul, yeah, Paul Mooney, sure. we would race across town at one o'clock from Westwood to watch his hour-long set at sunset. At, yeah, at he, one in the morning. Yeah, he was my artistic uh, god. Yeah. Uh, I love Paul Mooney. Sitting in the back of the room and, watching Paul. Yeah, and, and Paul would always have, uh, at the time, he would have protégés like Sandra Bernhardt mm-hmm. or Jackson Perdue, mm-hmm. and, and, and he helped you know, build them up. So uh, what Richard would do is uh, Paul kind of rescued Richard all right, and got him, and they worked together, and they sold some scripts to Red Fox, you know, for the Red Fox. Thing. Yeah, uh, and for, for which uh, for uh, he had a production company. Step, no, oh uh, Sanford and Sanford. Son. And okay, son. so so it had Paul in seventy two, seventy three. Pryor started putting it back together. Yeah, and it was at the time Richard Pryor did these cute little impressions and stuff like this, like exactly like Jim Carrey started. Yeah, okay. And then, just like Jim Carrey had his epiphany through Sam Kennison and became his roaring self, yeah, it was Paul Mooney who turned Richard Pryor yeah. into Dark Twain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Richard did that uh, uh, his first huge album, that N Words Crazy. Yeah. And it was such a huge success around campus; it made him a movie star. Uh, even though he was not allowed to be on Blazing Saddles, that was written for him. Oh, so when he had the identity crisis, uh, you know, because he was just sort of a Cosby clone, and he and he kind of hit the wall, and then he went to San Francisco for a while, and then Paul kind of like befriended him, and or they were they were aligned together and started writing together, and Paul sort of helped him inform the new socially relevant prior. Exactly, right. Uh, Turned him into, but and they were no, they were nothing alike because Paul was a. Uh, a Robert Kleinish uh, bit comic, yeah. and very—they were both derivatives of Lenny Bruce and Dick Gregory. Okay? Yeah. Okay. But but Pryor was a storyteller. Yeah. In the Mark Twain, you know, I, I begged him to uh, title his album "Dark Twain" yeah. because that's what he was. Right. Yeah. He was a great storyteller, and he what he would do is he would come to the comedy store Sunset, and during the uh, maybe two or three months. He would put together an album. Yeah, and he would go on every night at ten o'clock. Yeah, and Mitzi would have two shows before him and then him, and Pryor would schedule his own show. He would have David Letterman or Johnny Witherspoon yeah. to start, Marsha Warfield, then himself, and then Mooney afterwards would clean up. Yeah, and it was uh, just tremendous. You had, and he l- would work out. Li- yeah, work out, and he would never do a joke he had ever done on a previous album. Right, he started from scratch. It was painful at the start. Yeah. You, know, you would just, like Harris Pete and Johnny Witherspoon would sit in the back with Mitzi yeah. and just watch him build it. It was so beautiful to watch. I, I, I'm pretty sure Bill Burr is the closest, who works the closest like that. Uh-huh. And uh, and it would just, uh, probably Louis C.K. as well. Uh-huh. And I, 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 you might do that as well. Yeah. You, you start from scratch and you yeah. just... You, and that's that's what he did. It's the only way I can do it. And you work just like Pryor, mm. okay? Yeah. And that's and you you have the advantage as well, Mark, of being a you're the best storyteller along with Alan Steven I've ever met. You yeah, know. Alan. And, yeah. And I mean, you guys are just naturals. Oh, thanks, you were, you were on my podcast, Argus Hamilton's Comedy Store tonight, and I, I could have listened to you for three hours. As you know me, I go home right after my set. I yeah. never see anybody's work. Yeah, I don't. And, right. You yeah. just you just mesmerize me, man. Oh, good. And so, Pryor 
would would come in and the blocks uh, line would be around the block. Johnny Witherspoon and Harris Pete at the door would make a yeah. hundred dollars at table. Back when rent was sure. two hundred a month, sure. nobody had a phone bill. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah. The table hustling was something that yeah. we did too. Didn't you do it when you were a doorman? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> well, no. Mike Binder and I uh, were doorman at Westwood for a while, and the Comedy Store Westwood was a two hundred thirty-five seat. This is a good point yeah. about the Comedy Store Westwood two hundred thirty-five seat room, Mark, brick walls, tremendous acoustics. Yeah. Right. And the original room at the Comedy Store was terrible because it had been the old holding room at Ciro's nightclub, yeah. and they had uh, padded walls yeah. where the laughter just died. Okay, and so you had to earn every laugh in the original. And then, room. What, did they take those out? Huh? No, it's, it's still, it's that still a tough room. That's why it's that's why it's a tough room. You go from the original room to the main room. It's like you you're released from jail. Yeah, <laughs> it does take a while to learn how to work the OR, yeah. but it's yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah, you do, but you just learn to not let any air go between your punchline <laughs> and your next setup. So. Got to stay on top of them. Yeah, and so, uh, but but there was a good point about Westwood. Yeah, it, it was it was there from 1975 to 84. Binder and I would sell the best tables for yeah. five dollars a piece. We didn't know what we were doing. Yeah, we could, could have gotten twenty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. And but the thing about Westwood is interesting because it was such a good room that first of all, all the big shots, the big comics, the New York comics would come to Westwood on Thursday night because that was showcase night. William yeah. Morris night. You'd, your managers, the producers, and everybody would come in and showcase for the industry. Yeah. They wanted Westwood because it was such a great room. It's hot room, yeah. yeah. But for us regulars, us baby boomers that Mitzi put over there, my class of 76, uh, myself, Robin Williams, uh, Michael Keaton, Marshall Warfield, uh, my, Bob Saget, uh, Arsenio Hall, Mike Binder, Alan Steven, Mitchell Walters, Ollie Joe Prater, Vic Dunlop. Oh, my oh, God. What happened, we, where does Craig T. Nelson fit into it? Craig T. Nelson's much earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah. 72, 73. Uh, oh. And he's in, a, he's in a, a partnership with Barry Levinson, yeah. the director. They and did they, a team they, thing? Yeah, and they go their own oh, way. Right. But the point about Westwood is, is something I bet you'd never thought of. And it just, just occurred to me in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. It made us – see, Mitzi would send us over there to make us ready for sunset. Yeah. It was such a great room. Right. And we were able to create so much. Yeah. That by the time we'd been there for two or three years, we weren't ready for sunset. We were ready for the Tonight Show. Yeah. And we would just hop skid right over sunset and go right to Johnny. Okay? Yeah. But the problem is there's a bunch of crazy-ass baby boomers, all right, and we're – Technically, we're just great, but emotionally, we're not ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And Westwood made you ready too fast. You mean, oh, you got, because it was such a good room. It was such a good room. And you got so good so fast, yeah. your emotional edge didn't catch up with you. So but these these doormen at the comedy store now have to wait five, six, seven years to become regular. Yeah. That's the right pace to go. Uh-huh. Because us hot shots that got, you know, too well, fast, too good. So, so okay. So that's your crew, and so you're at Westwood, but you're also working the original room. You're also coming back. Mitzi would have me come over like on Sunday nights and uh, work the door there and host the show. Now, when's the cocaine start? Um, interesting. Uh, I had a roommate named Dale Reese. He was a bartender at the Comedy Store, and from uh, Pennsylvania, and. Uh, Who's the big movie star that pays John McClane? Um, oh, 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 Bruce Willis. Yeah, Bruce Willis. He's yeah. Bruce Willis's cousin. Yeah. Right? Bruce Willis was a bartender at the Improv at the time, yeah. along with Les Moonves, <laughs> the, right. the CBS chairman. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a Randy group, let's put it that way. Yeah. And uh, he, 
let's see, uh, Dale Reese had a, an eighth of an ounce, an eight ball, I yeah. guess you'd call it, in one of those vials. Yeah. And I, I turned it down the first three times. I'm yeah. still angry at myself over that. Yeah, for turning it down? <laughs> for turning it down. I said, <laughs> come on, I didn't even know I was an addict yet. Come yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he gave me this eight ball for some reason. And the next thing I knew, it, four or five days had gone by, and I was in La Mirada, why I don't know. Yeah. Coming out of a blackout at a Denny's, talking to a policeman across the table from me, just chatting up, having a good time, having no idea how I got there. Wow, it was nuts. Yeah, and uh, I've loved it ever since. <laughs> <laughs> now, but so when does this align with? Um, when did you get your? How many times did you do Carson? Uh, about fifteen times. You did it a lot. Oh right? yeah, yeah. So you were in the regular rotation. So when does that start for you? That, well, it was in, uh, what happened was, is interesting. Uh, in the fall of 79, Mitzi had a showcase with myself, uh, Joey Kamen, Jimmy Brogan, and four or five others for this Today Show shot, okay? And it's a Today Show feature story mm. on who's going to be the hot new comic of the 1980s. Wow. Okay? Jim McCauley, The Tonight Show. It's funny because Brogan went on to book The Tonight Show. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. And... Um, uh, Mitzi had uh, a big crowd there on a yeah. Thursday night, Jim McCauley. And we'd, McCauley had been bringing us all along for The Tonight Show. He just nurtured us all for, for years before we did our first shot. Really? Yeah, well, yeah. he was so always... You, so you got there in 75? 76. All right, so it's been a few years yeah. he's been looking at yeah. you. Yeah, and I have one of those sets. Yeah. Whenever I get to go at 10 o'clock, it's like easy for me. Like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. I, just, I just murdered the room. And I found out the next day the story was going to be about me. I was going to be the comic who can't miss in the 80s. You're the guy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so they, they come over to Crest Hill, all right, and we, we stay up partying. Are you living up there? I was the first one. You were at Crest Hill? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Who do you that. think would be the first one? You see, Crest Hill came with the purchase of the comedy store when Mitzi bought the comedy store in 1976. Yeah. She was a subleasee from 72 to 76. Yeah. She got a balloon loan, bought bought Crest Hill from uh, the old Ciro's owner, and he owned the house above it. And it was a spectacular view, as you know, of, of what, at Crest Hill? At Crest Hill. Yeah, yeah. He owned that. Uh, oh, so that's where she got it? Yeah, that, yeah, that was uh, Sinis, Frank Sinis' house. Yeah. And so as soon as she bought it, she had me, at Yakov Smirnoff, and Andrew Dice Clay move into it. I was in Dice's old room. You were in Dice's old oh, back With, the the, own, off, with off, its own bathroom. Off the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, uh, so the NBC Today show, it's like in October, comes yeah. to... to uh, to Crest Hill to shoot me. That's why and, your picture was up there. And we'd been up partying all night, as yeah. always. With Dice? Uh, no, no, no. Dice and, yeah. and Yakov never partied. Right. Uh, it's uh, just you and some D freaks? D Dice would take a wet sponge and take all the uh, coke off the table and just break our hearts when he'd wake up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, it just killed us. So uh, NBC Today Show shows up, and they have to wake me up at 2 in the afternoon to come uh, downstairs for my Today Show interview. Yeah. So I shower real quick, I come down, and I have a great interview it yeah. just knock it out of the park and so i get the get the air date and, and so we stay up all night november yeah. 3rd yeah to see it on november 4th so yeah. it's an excuse to party and stay up in snow yeah. coat. and we turn on nbc today and the iranians have just taken 52 americans hostage ah november 4th 1979 uh, the 100th anniversary of Will Rogers' birthday. Preempted. Uh, preempted. And they put the story off on me for like seven agonizing weeks. 
But it, it, but they put it on in late December, and Fred DeCordova sees it, The Tonight Show, and they say, boom, let's have Argus on The Tonight Show. So on January 8th, I, I make my debut. 1977? 1980. Oh, 1980. 1980. This is from 79 to 80. Yeah. And I start out, and uh, and I just had a tremendous time. Johnny came over and shook my hand, put his arm around me. It was, it was, it was fantastic. So you guys are getting jacked, though. You're in it. You're partying all night. And no, but doing... not not on the Tonight no, Show. No, no, I know yeah, that. Yeah. But I mean in general. Yeah, but we didn't know any better. Yeah. We'd been doing this since college. This is how you lived. No, no, the cocaine is not how you lived. Oh, in that's college. right. Well, yeah, cocaine <laughs> accelerated. Sure. <laughs> I mean, drinking. I mean, I know the difference. But like when you're up in that house and you're going for two days, yeah. you know, I mean, it's different. Yeah, it is different. And you know, you do get used to it. But I had a, I had an experience where I, when I was in there, when I was living at that house doing yeah. that life. Yeah. Uh, some woman came out and visited me that I knew in college. Oh no! And I was sitting around with like we were on the floor. There's a bunch of dudes. We're sm- we're you know doing everything. We're playing guitar. We're doing coke. And I'm like, isn't this amazing? It was just a- against the normies. Like you know they yeah, don't know yeah. how to live. This is how you live. No one lives like this. And then this woman writes me this letter two weeks later. She goes, no one would want to live like that. Like, what? <laughs> what a square! <laughs> but then, I mean, you haven't been east of La Brea since, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I just remember that moment where it's sort of like it is an insulated thing you think that everyone's living like that and you see those people going to work the next day or running or jogging but you know you you do and you know at some point when you get sober you realize like you know it was a freaky life man yeah well and in like the summer of 80 my parents came out to surprise me yeah i got that one too yeah yeah. they came by crest hill like at 10 30 in the morning and everybody's laid out just just drunk and lying out over the floor women waitresses passed out face down on the floor yeah god knows and 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 mother was just mother was just furious but they were coming to the comedy store that night in the main room to see me. It was a Saturday. Yeah. So Mitzi lined up the show just perfect so that uh, the right Bishop Hamilton yeah. and Ms. Lady Hamilton come in to see their little boy. Yeah. They had uh, Ronnie Kenny open the show, oh, then yeah. Mike Binder, yeah. then myself, then Shandling. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Binder comes on, does a clean set, kills yeah. the crowd, and asks for a round of applause for my parents. And everybody in the main room, tremendous crowd. They all yeah, clap. Yeah. Uh, Mike... Uh, Ronnie Kenny does it. Mike Binder does the same thing. Tremendous clean set, and then Binder introduces my parents yeah. again. Yeah. I walk up, kill the crowd, and 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 everybody's proud of my parents. Yeah. So Shandling walks out on yeah. stage, and Shandling says, "Yeah, I guess the parents are here. Yeah, nice to have you here. I think you should know something. I fucked him." <laughs> And the, <laughs> the crowd just went berserk. They just had enough yeah. of Mr. Yeah, Mr. Yeah, Hamilton. Yeah. Oh, the roof just came down. Yeah. And my mother jumped up, grabbed Dad. They took out of Mitzi's booth and, and, and led my dad down the hall. And she goes by poor Daly Pike, who's standing there strumming his guitar, getting ready for his guitar <laughs> yeah, act yeah. in the original room. Right. And my mother waves her finger at Daly and says, you boys are never going to go anywhere with your filth. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? They didn't. <laughs> Somehow she knew. <laughs> Shandling did all right. Shandling did just fine. Rest his soul. When what did a- you start dating Mitzi? When was that happening? Well, the night of the comedy, sh- my first Tonight Show shot, I was the last one to leave Mitzi's. Uh, house yeah. when we were partying all night long to celebrate at the first Mitzi's. shot. Yeah, at Mitzi's. Yeah. Well, about once or twice a week we would party at Mitzi's house and not who's, at Crest Who's Hill. in that crew? Biff Maynard, Tim Thomerson, Diane Ogden, wonderful, wonderful talent coordinator. Yeah. Uh, Richard, uh, whoever Richard's wife was at the time. Pryor? Uh, yeah, yeah, Pryor. His wife Deborah would yeah. sometimes be there. 
So this is when Mitzi was uh, in her partying uh, uh, phase. Uh, yeah, Mitchell Walter. Yeah, Mitzi didn't do coke. Mitzi liked pot. Yeah, but the rest of us would coke, and we'd drink, and we'd we'd sit there, and, and it would be uh, Robin Williams and Valerie would be there. Yeah, and uh, we would just solve the problems of the world, talk about everything. It was like a reverse AA meeting. You, when yeah. you stay up all night and you, you exchange your truth, you know, you, you need this lubrication to be truthful with and, each and other. And then Mitzi was there with Furrow too? Huh? Mitzi would hang out too? Oh, yeah. Well, we were up until about 6.30, sometimes 7 in the morning, and then Peter and Polly would come downstairs. <laughs> it would be time to go to school, uh-huh. and that would break up the party. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how it's all played out that, you know, uh, uh, that Peter has turned the place around? Yeah, it really is. Peter and... Uh, the people for whom uh, you and I, I know, are, are, are most grateful, and uh-huh. that is these millennials who come in and they buy up the tickets uh, on websites, and the and the shows are sold yeah, out ahead of time. It's pretty diverse, though. They're not all young people, you know. It's <laughs> a, like it's just a. I think over the course of the last few years, with people, you know, big acts kind of uh, supporting the place and, and putting it out in the world and talking yeah. about it, that it's become notorious again in a good way. Yeah. I mean, for a while there was infamous. Now it's uh, now it's great. But for a while there was like, oh, no one goes there anymore. Like, <laughs> you know, after Kennison, when I left in 80, when did I leave? 87 or 88, right when you got back, you know, it went through a pretty nasty time for a while. Well, I've, I've got another uh, explanation for that. There were 75 million baby boomers, and there were 80 million millennials. Yeah. But for your group, there were only about 35 or 40 million uh, Generation Xers. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I'm 1963. I'm like, maybe the tail you, end you, of the t- boomer. Tail end of the baby boomer. Okay. And one of the uh, security guys told me just the other night, I was yeah. talking to him about this. Yeah. And he said, well, one reason was, well, one of the big big security guys, he said, I says, I'm a Gen Xer. Yeah. We weren't into comedy. We were into music and violence. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> and and so and there just weren't enough of them to fill the clubs, you know, uh, to fill the comedy clubs. Really, you think so? That's that was my experience. I was there. Well, that, I know I get it, but didn't it get? But didn't you know, Mitzi get a little dark? Didn't the place get dark? That's the way people look at it. But I'm telling you, during the OJ, okay, let's think think out loud here for a second together. In Los Angeles in the 90s, yeah, you, we went to this glorious comedy time of the the flooding. Okay, the earthquakes. We had Rodney King. We had O.J. Simpson. Uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment. We had from '92 to '99 a glorious time in comedy, stand-up. Okay, yeah. And and the rooms. Uh, I would just say there was just no way to completely fill up the rooms because the, the the comics were great, the crowds were good, and I wouldn't say that there was really a dark time until the early 2000s, uh, 2001, 2002, 2003. And then the mullet. also, you know, man, the business of comedy clubs kind of took a dent, made a dent in it because people could see comedy in their home, in their cities. Then. I, I hadn't thought of that. That's a good. I mean, like Jesus. I mean, everybody was out there on the road. I mean, there was no the the the, the imperative to, to sort of see comedy in L.A. was diminished a bit. If you could see it in Denver or you could see it in Columbus. <laughs> Did you see the same people? Sure. They're the headliners. Right. And uh, uh, the interesting thing about those comedy clubs uh, was. There was this show in Los Angeles in 1978. I forgot to tell you yeah. about it. I'm sure you heard about it. Make Me Laugh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what people today don't know, they need to Google Make Me Laugh because it was huge. All right? you guys did it, right? Yeah. And Bruce Baby Man, bomb. Yeah. And 
Biff Maynard, uh, Mr. Uh, Bitchin, yeah. uh, Kip Adada, uh, but all of us did it, okay? And it was fantastic. What was you, the name of the host? Bobby Van? Bobby Van, yeah, yeah. MGM dancer. Yeah. A wonderful guy, and George Foster was the producer, yeah. and he had produced the show in 1958 when it got kicked off the air for a Nixon joke, mm. okay? Mm-hmm. And so it came back in syndication, and here's the important thing. Two things happened. First of all, it was on at 11 o'clock. It was syndicated, I think, Metromedia, mm-hmm. right? And all across the country, you know, any any area that had four or five TV stations would, would take make me laugh. And it was on up against the local news. Yeah. And we were kicking the news's ass. Yeah. Uh, in L.A. You were and one of the regulars? Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> what it did was it made stand-up, like, uh, for, the, for the casual listener right now, make me laugh went like this. There's a crowd of 300 people in the studio audience. Yeah. I'm facing Mark Marin. I do material here on Mark. Secretly hoping he doesn't laugh because the crowd is laughing and giving me airtime. Yeah. Okay. Oh, right, right. And so, so we're, we're 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 looking at you and playing to the crowd at the same time. The crowd's going berserk, and the, and the, of course the uh, the person at home is seeing these fresh baby boomer comics. They're just fantastic. Oh, that's funny. So you were all aware that you didn't want the guy. To no, laugh. you didn't. Well, you wanted that airtime. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, it became popular. It kicked ass and. That is what started all the comedy clubs around the country. Mm. It, it, it came from uh, it came from make me laugh, and that came with its own reward and poison mark. Because once these comedy clubs sprang up, with which you're well familiar, in the early '80s, mid '80s, what happened was they would give the headliner, you know, five thousand dollars a week or a door deal, yeah. and everybody would just take off for it. Okay, right. and it's kind of like cruise ships now. It, the money's so good. You just keep doing it, and pretty soon L.A. forgets about you, right? So there were guys who would be on the road for months, for months, even longer. Yeah, and and they would fall in love with the waitress. They decide to buy a home somewhere here and there, and then you know, da, da, da. and pretty soon they had a kid, and they were locked into that lifestyle and and gone from L.A. Yeah, they just self-exiled. So, so you're saying that the that people started to diminish? They diminished themselves just by by and they by, disappeared by, from L.A. When they disappeared from L.A., the town, the that town, and the industry forgot about you. you Enjoy your money because in about 1986 and 87, every single one of these cities yeah. is going to have a second and third comedy club. Yeah. And then they start competing, having paper wars, giving away tickets. The revenue goes down, and these guys are stuck out there right. making one-fifth of the money they were making. Yep. And, yeah, that was a sad crash of the boom. But now it's interesting because if you can find your people, you can just play anywhere. You need the fucking comedy club. Well, it, 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 well you're the one that's just led the way with this show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, I'm. I'm happy that people were able to get the hang of me, and I, <laughs> and I could sell a few tickets eventually. Yeah, it worked out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now, how does it get progressively bad for you? How 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 many years did you see Mitzi for? Uh, about two, and then uh, while I was off to my first rehab, Yakov Smirnov introduced Mitzi to a Russian psychiatrist, uh-huh. and she fell for him. And uh, I was just, I was I was out. <laughs> Russian psychiatrist, <laughs> yeah, a handsome long, guy too. How long did she date that guy? Until uh, he drank himself to death. <laughs> you know, once an Al-Anon, always an Al-Anon. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Wait, so were you there for the strike? Oh, was I? It, that was seventy-six. I caused it. You caused it. Yeah. I caused the strike. How? Well, in the summer of 78, Mitzi's really disconsolate because she has purchased the comedy store. She had a dream for the main room, Mark. Yeah. And you guys aren't together yet. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm sitting there at 2.30 in the morning with her and Biff Maynard. And Biff and I are snorting coke and, yeah. and Mitzi's smoking a joint. And we're in the main room by ourselves. Yeah. And she's crying 
because her whole idea about the main room, this 400-seat room, yeah. was for her peers to come back and play. Yeah. Okay? Her peers, Buddy Hackett, Don Rickles, uh, all that group. It was Mitzi's dream to have these comics come back and play the main room. Weren't they, what's what, what, Sammy's friends? Yeah, but Mitzi was the den okay, mother okay. in Vegas. Mitzi knew all of them. They yeah, loved. Yeah. They all loved Mitzi. Yeah. Elvis loved Mitzi. Yeah. Okay, they all loved her. Yeah. And she had she she could pick up the phone and get any of them on the line. Right. Uh, and uh, Shecky, so that was her dream. Shecky, okay. Sure. The problem was was their agents. Their agents would not let them play the Comedy Store main room because they were afraid it would hurt their Vegas draw. Yeah, cut into the draw. Because Vegas was these super salaries at the time, yeah. and, and Vegas is 90% L.A. on the weekends. Right. Okay. So they didn't, wouldn't let them do it. And Mitzi just couldn't. She had tried Tiny Tim. She had had uh, the great Dick Gregory in. Uh, she could get you know people some spot things. Buddy Rich and his band would yeah. bring Johnny Carson out, and it would be exciting for a night. But she couldn't get it filled. And so... Biff and I are sitting there saying, look, you've got these great comics, okay, with, uh, with Mooney and, and Dreesen and, and Glitterman, Leno, Elaine Boozler, uh, all the mule deer. My yeah. God, it's incredible. The guys that are now out working, you could have them in the main room, and then we could do the original room in Westwood, and, and our goal is to be, be in the main room. Yeah. And this is summer of 78, and Mitzi said, well, I, that would turn this into a professional room. And uh, and uh, this is a this I see the comedy store as an art colony, and as a, as a place to where you get ready to go out and work. Right in the OR. Yeah, yeah. But she, not the main she, room. Yeah. She wanted big shows and, in the main. And room. then Biff and I said to her, "To hell with it! Split the ticket money and give half to the comics and and uh, and half to yourself." I said, "Mitzi, over at Westwood right now. When I'm at the door, I'm sending 150 people." every Saturday night over to the improv because of the spillover. Yeah. Okay? And I'm telling you, we can do it. Yeah. And she tried to devise a little uh, ticket purchase thing where you buy six tickets for $25 for six shows. It was some crazy idea. Yeah. It didn't work. And uh, uh, there was a, there was a, this was all about the main room comics. Yeah. There's about 25 of them. Right. And I talked Mitzi into, open, in, in, into doing this. And so putting she, the comics in the main room. Yeah, putting comics yeah. in the main room. And she balked on a couple of the payment things. And so Tom Dreesen uh, wanted to, of course, he Tom knew a professional room when he see one. Yeah. And so he, he wanted the 25 comics to come in and, and talk about it and take some action. The problem was 200 comics joined the meeting that had no business being there. Mm -hmm. There weren't main room comics. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, before you knew it, it became a movement and a bear. It's off to the barricades, mm -hmm. and the strike of May of '79 occurred. And all your listeners, all they have to do is Amazon buy William Needle Cedar's book. Uh, I'm dying up here. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. That HBO made the series sure. out of, or was it Showtime? Oh, they know about it. I talked to Dreesen about. It. I've talked yeah. to a lot of people yeah. about it. And so it happened, and there were about uh, about a dozen of us that stood by Mitzi during the strike. Um, I, uh, I just, just in my DNA, going back 400 years to stand by the queen, you know. Yeah. And so, and I so did. you cross the picket line. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I stood out there and talked people into walking through. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm not. So alone. you were, uh, so there was tension between you and the other no, comics. No, no, they all, if you look at the book, they say Argus was always a gentleman. Yeah. I was, I was always happy. I was the But you were a loyalist and you, you were not going to, uh, uh, let this, uh, fuck up the business. No, I wasn't. Uh, cause at one point, Mitzi was so, angry when 
when David Letterman, bless his heart, came down after his very first night of hosting the, guest hosting The Tonight Show yeah. in the middle of the strike, he came walking down the ramp of the Hyatt House yeah. with the picket line out yeah. front. And the picketeers all started singing The Tonight Show theme song. Yeah. And he joined them instead of going in to see Mit- in, uh-huh. to Mitzi. Uh-huh. I, that, Mitzi was sitting at the original room window looking out and saw that. She was sitting there with Alan Stephen, uh-huh. and it broke her heart. Because two years earlier, or five years earlier, she had talked Letterman out of going back home to Indiana when he was discouraged. No, I get it. I get it. So and, who were the loyalists? You and Stevens? Uh, Alan Stevens, Alan Bursky, uh, uh, Lois Bromfield, Yakov Smirnoff, Frank Karaskio, Biff Maynard joined a little later. And a lot of people that were loyal to Mitzi simply stayed away. Both in the picket line, because nobody knew which way this was going to break, because the firebrands on the picket side said, we're going to join AGVA, and AGVA is going to keep you from ever joining AFTRA, and you're never going to get to do television. That that was their threat. Yeah. And And that was Lonow and Dreesen. That that was really from the left wing of it. Dreesen was just trying to manage things. Well, who's the left wing of it? Mark Uh, Lonow? Uh, no, Lano and I came up with the solution. I'll get to that. Oh, yeah. uh, there was there was a, there was some, let's just say, open micers. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, that, that 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 were really good at union stuff, <laughs> and they were the ones that were trying to threaten union cards. All right. And two weeks into the strike, I met with Mark Lano next door at the Hyatt House. Yeah. On the mezzanine. Yeah. And we came up with the pay scale mm-hmm. for the main room, for the original room in Westwood. Okay. I came back and presented to Mitzi, mm-hmm. and she said, I'll think about it. And that's the night that, that uh, Letterman walked down, and she said, I will never settle with those bastards, okay? Uh-huh. And it it was just, it was lights. Mitzi was so angry for, for two weeks. There was no no dealing with her. And finally, uh, finally, she just sort of came to. Yeah. Uh, my, my other thing that I did was- Didn't the, the improv agree to do it? Uh, the improv wasn't paying, and they got to be strike headquarters. Bud Friedman pe- played this very cleverly. Yeah. But the most important thing that happened in the middle, that if I had a, a role in it, was that Glendale Federal stepped in and offered Mitzi $15 million for the entire building and the whole location, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. which was a lot of money back in 1979. Yeah. And she was she was back and forth on it, and... Uh, a couple of us gave her a serious talk about it. She's not going down in history if she's going to be another rich Jewish woman at the tennis club. Yeah. You know, this is her mark on history. She's, right. she's got to stay with us. Oh, really? So you talked her out of selling? To Glendale Federal yeah. for $15 million. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was always good with somebody else's money. <laughs> <laughs> so she finally resolved it. Yeah, finally resolved it. it. The strike lasted five weeks. So once it's resolved, and then, you know, then the, there was... Rep- <clears throat> either real or or thought to be real reprisals for for being disloyal correct uh that was their perception and i i'm here to say no uh, yeah. there were just a couple of guys like lebetkin who who weren't really that regular irregulars that that she uh just had didn't give any spots for two weeks to and he he jumped off the hyatt over because he yeah well he had some mental problems He'd be very and it was detailed in the la times by william needle cedar again yeah about uh, well yeah so what was interesting was that treason told me that you know when he was on his way out after the strike you know, he had he was going out to Vegas or somewhere to work, and, and Lebeckin was concerned he wasn't going to get spots, and Dreesen had said to him, 
you know, and you know, well, I'm not going to do spots here until you get spots. And then he killed himself. Yeah. And Dreesen didn't go back for 40 years. Yeah, I know. I introduced him, remember? <laughs> yeah. You were there that night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. But, yeah. like, I talked to him. I didn't know that part of the story, though, that the reason that it was this, <laughs> like, this, not a shame thing, but sort of a haunted thing about Lubeckin saying that. Yeah. You know, that, you know, <clears throat> he made this promise to Lubeckin that, that couldn't be, you know, uh, could never be altered. Yeah. Because the guy killed himself. And he, and he stood by it. Well, of of the comics that we've mentioned, Mitzi was hurt by Letterman, uh, and then she was spited by George Miller for a while. Mm-hmm. Miller eventually came back, mm-hmm. but it, it, that hurt her too because she loved George. Mm. But George could turn his wit on you, and mm-hmm. it wouldn't be pretty. And uh, Mitzi always suspected that George's mother had a hand in the strike because she had been Mitzi's accountant, mm. okay, in 78 and 79, and Mitzi moved her office up to the third floor, which is a long walk for a 75-year-old lady. <laughs> oh, yeah. She, <laughs> and, and so Mitzi always suspected that George's mother leaked how much money Mitzi was making <laughs> to George, oh, really? who leaked it to the strikers. Interesting. Oh, it was it was. Well, I mean, it, but it politics. was the right thing, though, man. It was good policy to pay the fucking comics, right? Well, once once the see everyone accepted the the lay of the land as we found it that these showcase clubs were places that you showcase for the industry, which is where you got work. Fine. We didn't we didn't know any better. We didn't know it was a nightclub. Okay, right. Okay, but, but the main they, rooms the main. Room. But the main rooms the main room, and that turned everything into a nightclub. Right. Okay. And then, uh, and the deal still holds today. It still does. I never understood. I, I begged Mitzi, just double the cover charge. We've got plenty of money. Yeah, you know, double the cover charge, and and your problems are over. But she, she really, you have to remember that that Mitzi Shore was was an early to mid nineteen fifties bohemian. Yeah. Okay, and I mean to the core, an yeah. artist. And when she said artist colony, she meant artist colony. I need to show you my souvenir. Oh my, oh my! Mitzi's driver's license. <laughs> did, were you a runner for her too? I did, but this is no. I found this on the floor in her office when I was in there with Binder. Mark is showing me yeah, Mitzi Shore's driver's <laughs> license, and when I was her runner and yeah. doorman, Mitzi and she was uh, buying all the materials to redecorate the main room yeah. in the summer of '76. Yeah. I was running all over town in her little Pinto with her driver's license and her checkbook yeah. to buy all the paint and this, that, this, that, and the other. Yeah. And it was so cute because it was it was, it was driver's license were still paper back then. Right. Okay. And I would hand the uh, the check to the the paint store yeah. and give him Mitzi's driver's license. Yeah. And she would have her birth year marked over in pencil because it's none of their fucking business. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> and, and of course, all the, the, the merchants, they knew her. They, sure, they sure. That was their biggest laugh of the day. Give them a story for dinner yeah. table. So now, how does it all come un- unglued, man? How do you hit the wall? And was it dramatic? And like, let's go now to like, you know, you. so you're pretty steadily, what, doing two tonight shows a year? Uh, no, I'm just going up and down, doing a lot, doing a little, doing a lot, doing a little. And were you working almost exclusively at the store? Or uh, that, you, of course, yeah. And, but you, are you are you opening for musical acts or anything? Or? Well, after my first Tonight Show shot, uh, Jeff Walt, the manager, yeah. Helen Reddy's husband, took me on. Yeah. And I would open for Helen Reddy across the country. Right. And... Uh, not emotionally ready for that either, mm-hmm. but I, you know, there was nothing. Are like, we? Are you emotionally ready now? No. <laughs> all right. So you never get emotionally. Ready. No, no, uh, no. I still all I want to have is fun and give joy to the crowd. That's yeah. all that matters to yeah. me. And and I, I notice things that are fun, like when the mayor of Shreveport, Louisiana, comes backstage to say hi and give Helen Reddy the key to the city, and 
it's 1980, and she's locked in her dressing room smoking a joint. Yeah. And he's standing there with two Louisiana cops wanting to give <laughs> her the key to the city. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Just wait. Come yeah. back. Come yeah. back later. Right. Oh, my God. So, anyway, you, you get those great stories. Yeah. <clears throat> but what happened to me was uh, it by eight, 1981, I started to bottom out. And... Uh, and it was just I would just start start my day and end my day partying, and uh, and the, the telltale sign, as you'll know, is I, I stopped writing new material. Sure, yeah. Well, you uh, stop sleeping too. Yeah, that that doesn't help. <laughs> and your brain starts and, uh, to go a little nutty. And so uh, in the fall of '81, they send me back to a, a famous hos- Episcopal hospital in Tulsa, and I go back for and it's, your folks it's, did. It's, no, no, Mitzi does, huh. and uh, they. Uh, it's a tremendous uh, St. John's Hospital there. It's regu- but it was the, one of the first of the rehabs. You yeah. know? And uh, I loved AA as soon as I got to it. Man, this was fantastic. It, just great. And I, I'd get made sense 45, 50 days. I love the laughter in the rooms. Yeah. Uh, and, so you like and, the, and the I, crowd. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, spiritual, I'm spiritually involved and connected anyway. So I, I got it early on that my connection with God is, is just as good a buzz as any blow that yeah. I ever did if, right. I'm, if I'm helping somebody. Right. That's, that's the key. Right. And so I loved it, but when I got back, I didn't have enough sobriety under my belt to withstand a week at the comedy store. <laughs> a week. <laughs> yeah. And so who, who pulled you out? Which monster <laughs> gave uh, you the line? A, a good friend from Nebraska named Dave who's dead now. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh we uh, we uh so so I would hide for a while and then it became apparent again and I would go uh to the uh, Cedar Sinai uh had a care unit in 84 and 85 and then uh care unit Orange in March of 86 care Why? unit the chain yeah, 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 well, yeah, at the time it was. I went to care unit. That's when I left L.A. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, finally the Betty Ford Center in 86. And yeah. that's because Mitzi got together with Johnny and my father. The three of them got together. Johnny Carson? Yeah. yeah I met Johnny and my dad corresponded. and uh, They intervened? Yeah. Well, they, in a way. they yeah. said, Johnny, Mitzi says no more stand-up. Johnny says no more TV. Daddy said no more money. <laughs> and, and I got willing. <laughs> it was my, my sobriety was somebody else's idea. Yeah. <laughs> they got you. Yeah, but they got me. And and then, you know, I, I found out that it's the, it's the best buzz of all. It really is. Yeah. But but you have it, – it's just like becoming a, a, a great stand-up comic like you or, or however good I am. You have to go through those open mics. You have to go through – through all that pain in order to become bulletproof and irresistible up there. Yeah. You have to. It, it, it's, if you don't do it, you, 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 the crowd is going to sense the weakness. It's, yeah. you know, they're going to sense it. Yeah. And, and you just have to go through whatever it takes to get to your bottom in order to be fully convinced. Yeah, it's weird, and, the, that bulletproof business. Because that doesn't mean you're going to win all the time. No. It just means you can take it. You can take it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, tomorrow is another day. I do. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I follow you most of the time uh, in the main room, and you always come off, you're like, you have to stay on top of them, or it's like, you're going to love them. Yeah, it's one or of the two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it's Joe Rogan's crowd, you got to stay on top of them. <laughs> yeah, 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 to keep their attention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if it's a regular crowd and they just show up and they yeah. get, they've got money, yeah. uh, then they're on your side. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it's very it's very funny how often I see you and how often I follow you in there and how we have kind of that change of the exchanging of the baton yeah. business. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm well, just telling you, that, you know, don't go dancing between jokes right, with right, this crowd. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. You got to do the job. 
So, all right. So let's clear up the. So, what was your relationship with Kennison? Oh, fantastic! I discovered him in Houston. You did. I did. Yeah, in uh, 1979, uh, Showtime had uh, their uh, their comedian of the year things that were regional. Yeah. Okay. Right. And the Southern comedians. Uh, were in uh, Houston. They, they said they were going to fly us back to Houston. So me, Ollie Joe Prater, and Jim Varney were flown to Houston for yeah. this big Showtime special. Yeah. All right. Jim Varney, Ernest? Yeah, Ernest. Yeah. And Varney, brilliant actor. And yeah. then they would have two local comics, and then uh, they, they would have three TV stars from Hollywood judge. Right. So we went back there at, at this room called Rockefeller's in Houston. Mm. It, was a, a, it was a redone bank with... Uh, marble walls and tremendous acoustic. Mm-hmm. We just murdered the show, and Ollie Joe won something. He, he didn't know how to handle yeah. it. But after the show, wasn't Ollie Joe known for taking other people's bits? There's a great story about Ollie Joe Prater. Yes, he. But, but the problem was he was like Gleason. Gleason did the same thing. Right. He did him so well that you didn't really mind. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. And 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 what they <laughs> if said it was uh, your bit. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. This, this, here's here's the, here's the joke. It says it perfectly. The, the comics in the early '80s they came up with this joke. They said, "If Ollie Joe, if you come into the c- club a night early yeah. and it's Sunday night, okay, and you just yeah. want to see the previous week's show." Ollie Joe comes up to you. If he offers you a beer, yeah. it means he did one of your jokes. Right. right? If he offers you a joint, he, he did one of your bits. Yeah. If he offers you a line of cocaine, it means you just played Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Ollie Joe wins this Southern thing, and we go backstage, and there's this huge real estate agent in Houston with a softball in his hand. It's actually a cocaine, a ball of cocaine the size of a softball oh with a runway scraped off uh-huh. of it. And, and we all have to sit around and wait our turn. And I'm looking, we're all like the RCA Victor dog, yeah. you know, his master's voice, which yeah. is staring at that ball. Yeah. And I'm looking straight across and the other pair of eyes is Sam Kennison. Uh-huh. And we met across a ball of cocaine. Uh-huh. And I canceled my flight back to LA to hang out with Sam for three or four nights. And I told him, I said, you guys, are, you guys are so damn funny. Were you, you talking got... Jesus talk? No, 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 no. Well, when we'd get real Come coked on. up, he'd be, uh, he would, he would talk about praise and, and sing, singing. And I would say, no, it's the ritual. I mean, it's the high church, low church argument, uh-huh. but we were both Ar- Arminian. So we both believe in, uh, and, uh, you you can come back from sin and and be saved. Well, I think that was his. Uh, I think he was always ha- counting on that. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but, but right up till the end. But, but, but grace can be earned and lost. It's the point. Yeah. So uh, Sam and I we would t- talk a lot of theology, and I just loved him. I just loved him. And he uh, uh, he sent out uh, the kid that became famous that died with his uh, Hicks. Yeah, Bill Hicks. Yeah. Hicks came out first. Hicks ran away from home yeah. at age 19, and I put him up at Crest Hill in one of the rooms. Yeah. And it's 1980, and got him a doorman's job, and he would showcase for Mitzi, and it would drive Mitzi crazy because he took so much time between jokes, uh-huh. standing up there preening, and it just he, it drove her nuts. Uh-huh. But Sam got, followed out, and uh, we would— uh, we would be just, you know, just thick as thieves all the way through. Yeah. But the incident you were talking about. How did Hicks get? How did Hicks? Did Hicks have a falling out with him and then left? I don't. Him? I don't know. You I just. Know I just part. know that Hicks took off on the road yeah. and went to Britain, and that's where he got. You know. That was later. Yeah. Yeah. But just took off. Yeah. Because <clears throat> but when he got there, it was like what eighty. Yeah. 
81. But, you know, the I, I never, I'd lost, he just disappeared as far as I was concerned. And when I heard some of Hicks's stuff, I could hear Sam's setup. I could hear Sam's voice in him. There was a well. There, there was some continuity there. Yeah, and when when Sam's calm jokes, when he yeah, was calm, how he built the, the yeah, calm joke. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, I could yeah. hear that in Hicks's yeah, voice. The build. Yeah, well, you yeah. know, I told I tell that story about what Sam told me. Yeah, you know, when I was asking him, how'd you figure it out, man? How'd you, you know, the, the, you know, who, where'd you get your style? Yeah. Like, you know, what was it that inspired you? And he goes, Gene Wilder. Really? Yeah, because we'll think about how Gene builds. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's very Jewish, Sam. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. You just, oi. Yeah, but there's that slow build that's he does. Right. You know? Oh, and he was so wonderful. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And, and he would take, he could, he was like Charles Fleischer. Fleischer could, could break down a molecule into yeah. what was called molids. It's, yeah, it's I know, molids. And, and <laughs> Fleischer could get a crowd going talking about molecular structure. I know. I it's know. all about your belief and commitment, what you're talking about. Yeah. And Sam could get him going on theology. He could. He'd be up there. He, he would say, you know, he'd look up at, at the sky and say, when are you coming home, well, he Jesus? He knows how to preach. When are you coming home, he Jesus? Knew, when yeah. are you coming back, Jesus? He said, I'll be glad to come back yeah. as soon as I can no longer whistle yeah, through my yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, and so he would just have me on the floor. Yeah, yeah, it was something. I mean, he was, uh, yeah, it's a, he, I met him right when I got there and I got tangled up with those guys pretty quickly. He was a bit of a bully and a mind fucker, but uh, yeah, he definitely is a charismatic dude. Well, well, every other day you'd just have to say that's the cocaine talking. I guess, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, like, I didn't, I was never led into the inner sanctum, really, because I was just up in Crest Hill, and yeah. I was the guy that set up the parties. He'd give yeah. me money. I'd go to Pink Dot and buy booze and cigarettes and wait for the freak show. Yeah. <laughs> and then he brought the Coke and the weirdos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You both did your part. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but what was this mythological incident where you well, were... Well, one afternoon, in, uh, it was in August of 80... August of 82, okay? So before uh, you got sober. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was uh, Falstaff was one of the uh, comedy actors who who dealt coke at the comedy yeah. store, and he dropped by in the afternoon, and I got a gram from him. And yeah. Robin dropped by, and yeah. Robin and I are upstairs uh, doing coke in, in the, the middle in, of the in, day in, in the green room. Yeah, yeah. And and for some reason, I get a call from Alan Stevens, yeah. and Alan is just angry. Uh, at the time, because he, Mitzi won't give him any time slots yeah. at Westwood, yeah. and he's making hamburgers, making at six in the morning and making a dollar ninety an hour. He said, "Yeah." And I said, "He was loyal to Mitzi during the strike. This yeah. can't happen." Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I said, "Robin, I've got to go in and talk to Mitzi." And Robin says, "I'm, I'm, I'm leaving her." So this is during the day. Mitzi's in her office. Yeah. You're doing blow in the green room with Robin. Yeah. In the middle of the afternoon. No, late afternoon. Wait, That's because okay. she's going to leave in a minute. Okay. <laughs> I burst into her office, and she's sitting there and with you're Meg. jacked. Yeah. And Mitch, she's sitting there with Meg Stahl, her longtime assistant. Yeah. The perfect lady, Meg yeah. Stahl. And I, I go into this. Missy, Alan Stevens starving. He can't pay his rent. He's making hamburgers. And he stood by us, and he's the funniest guy you have in La Jolla. You've got to give him some time slots. It's over at Westwood. What's the big goddamn deal? Yeah. And she says, Argus, what? You're high again. God damn it, Argus, you, you slipped. You know, yeah. I'm, and so she and she got mad. I, I, all of a sudden, I go, I'm in trouble. So I I follow her to her car. Yeah. And and I I've got my hand on her car, and uh. And, and she's telling me, Argus, get well, get help. But yeah. da, 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 yeah, da, da, yeah, da. Yeah. And uh, 
And uh, and Sam comes over and says, Argus, get over here. This isn't any good. So he pulls me away. But I, yeah. I wasn't hitting her. Yeah. And I said, Mitzi, I, I love you, but you've got to help Alan. And, yeah. and, and, and while, he's, while Sam's pulling me away. So what I'd done was she'd tried to make up with me and wanted to make up with me and take me to Paris yeah. the next day. She had This was all planned. I was supposed to stay with Mitzi for a week at the George Sank Hotel. for Just for fun? Yeah. And... Uh, and this canceled my trip. She went to Paris herself. Oh, because you guys were dating at the time. No, no, we weren't really dating. She just wanted to we, yeah. we wanted to hang out with yeah. me. Because I was, I was a really good political advisor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so we were going to go to the George Sank Hotel for, I think, two weeks, yeah. it turned out. And she flew off to Paris by herself. Uh-huh. Okay. And I wake up the next morning. I, I know I even have, I still have the passport I got for that trip. Uh-huh. And I wake up and I go, oh man, I've blown it. Oh, what have I done? And I go to the comedy store and Mike Becker is at the, uh, Becker. Phone, Becker is at the phone. He says, Argus, you just got this letter today and it's official looking brown envelope. And it's a, it's a rebate check from the IRS for five thousand dollars. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Mitzi's out of town for two weeks. Five thousand dollars. You paint in the picture. Yeah. And I said, "Best two God, weeks of your life." I said, "God, I'll be good for after this." <laughs> <laughs> so that's the way that went down, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah. I lost my shit in that parking lot. It's just interesting about the place to me. Where I don't know, like, you know, my history there you know, early on was short and it was after yours. But, like, you know, if you're either connected to that place or you're not. Yeah. And, you know, like I used to when I lived in Crest Hill, I used to go down there during the day and make coffee and start my day there. And I would listen to music in the original room and, yeah. just, and fuck around in the parking lot. You just, you know, either you, you have some part of your heart that lives at that place for better, for worse, or, or you don't. Yeah. As a comic, you know. Well, but there's a there's 5,000 places where you can fit in now. I guess, but like the store is is still the store, and it's really interesting now to see it well managed with security, with bathrooms that are fucking decent, you know, like you know, with a, a staff that's sort of. I mean, it's a little. It doesn't feel corporate really, but it feels well operated for the first time I've ever seen it. And, and Mitzi, uh, oddly enough, Mitzi would be happiest of all oh, for with sure. the bathrooms. Okay, because yeah. she always <laughs> said it's the she always said it's the women who decide where you're going, and they decide on the bathrooms. Yeah, she always said that. It took and, a long time to get those bathrooms fixed, dude. And she uh, she also put a big bag uh, a big bowl of Spanish peanuts on every single table. Mm. So you'd eat those Spanish peanuts, get that salt in your mouth, and order another drink. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember the old bathrooms. The only thing you missed is like, well, we don't do coke anymore, so you don't need that single occupancy bathroom. <laughs> those two bathrooms in the hallway were the best coke bathrooms in town. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And you had the payphone right there in case Baby, yeah. you need to run over to Debbie's. So now what is it that, because uh, I know, you know, there's still cats, you know, from your generation around that, you know, that are not, that are kind of, um, you, you know, locked out of the club now. Uh, in a way, and and you're the guy that like was there like was it in uh, like you're the one who works. You always kill. I, yeah, I'm not begrudging you anything, and you're you're a great comic. But uh, you are the only one of your generation that can still work at that place. Was that in her will or something? I I, I have no idea. I have no idea. I just know that here's here's what happened. Uh, I read something by Mort Saul in his 1976 book called Heartland. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it was he was talking about how. He made it big at the club in San Francisco uh, in the 1950s. Hungry Eye? At the Hungry Eye. Yeah. And he said, regarding that, he said he learned something important. He said, if I'll just stay in one place and become great, the world will find me. Right. Okay? Yeah. And so 
when I started doing The Tonight Show, uh, there was a serious side to me as well. And I was offered 36 mm-hmm. sitcoms, uh, okay, in 80, 81, and 82. Mm-hmm. 36. Mitzi counted them. Uh, I had holding deal offers from Lord Lou Grade, from Maddie Simmons at Universal for uh, National Lampoon. Mm-hmm. They had a... They, they were offering me fifty, seventy-five hundred thousand dollar holding deals, mm-hmm. and I turned them all down. Mm. Uh, and uh, because, frankly, because I wanted to host a talk show, mm-hmm. like I finally wound up doing in the basement. In the basement, but it's <laughs> it, we're on our way up. <laughs> and thanks for the basement remark. <laughs> it is in the it's, basement. It's yeah. I'll, well, Dude, I started in the garage. It's not. I'm not being condescending. Uh, well, I, I, I'm debating whether or not to say that that's that's where it all ended for the Romanoffs was the basement. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. That's your big last show. Yeah. <laughs> the last time I stand up to those fucking socialists. <laughs> so, uh, so but, that was the plan. You were holding out. Yeah, you wanted uh, to do a talk yeah, show. Yeah, I was loyal to the comedy store, and the comedy store was loyal to me through the strike and through this, the other, and my, uh, you know, my payback to the comedy store is I, I write 13 jokes a day yeah okay for all these newspapers that take my newspaper monologue still yeah yeah and I take those 75 jokes a, a week or whatever it is and pick out the best uh, 20 of them yeah and I use that for my monologue on Argus Hamilton's comedy store tonight yeah which I'd love for you viewers to check out I yeah. really would yeah Argus Hamilton's comedy store tonight I give him that six seven minute monologue yeah as you know we have a great sure. crowd down there yeah because uh, Mark Marin came, and I'm telling you, he destroyed that crowd, and the acoustics are great down there. In the basement. Uh, yeah. Basements are made for and, entertainment. And you, you'll, have, you'll have 20 people down there, and the laughter just rocks all over yeah, the yeah. place. And we're going to be moving up to the uh, belly room in about six to eight weeks when, oh, yeah. the, when the Comedy Channel gets launched. Mitzi very shrewdly trademarked the Comedy Channel yeah. in 1978 or 79. Uh-huh. HBO tried to buy it from her. They bribed her with specials and you know yeah. $500,000, and she said no. They said, okay, we'll just call it Comedy Central. <laughs> yeah. And she ke- we kept the trademark, and so the Comedy Channel will be launching in about six weeks. Streaming. I, I don't know. It has something to do with Amazon and all this other oh, stuff yeah? they're doing. But they're, it's, it's going to be a big deal. Oh, yeah? And and my show's like the linchpin of it. And if we get uh, comics like you keep coming back, if you'll yeah. do it. And uh, we we had Joe Rogan on. Yeah. And then uh, we've got Daryl Hammond next week. And the week after that, we got Bill Burr on. Oh, great. And so uh, if I can keep guys on like you with followers, you know, real followers, we can generate the, the following and, and, and try to, you know, make enough money to pay our freight, you know. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, yeah, any, I'll, I'll come down again. Uh, man, I, if you folks have not come to see Mark <laughs> perform stand-up, I'm telling you, it, you are. I've never heard a better storyteller. Well, I thank really you haven't. so much. I mean, who, who was your hero as a storyteller? Uh, you know, I, I don't know how I evolved my, my style, but the guys I liked when I was younger were, I listened to, uh, to Richard Pryor a lot. I think that first movie really changed yeah. my life. Did but you ever I, listen to David Steinberg? I was never a David Steinberg fan or a Robert Klein fan. Really? I, I was really like, you know, Carlin, Pryor, Woody Allen, Cheech and Chong, um, and then like, you know, the older guys, Buddy Hackett, Don Rickles. Uh, I loved uh, early Leno uh, when I used to see him on the on the talk shows when yeah. I was a kid. When he was trying. Yeah, yeah. We all have that, that time yeah, when we're yeah. trying. But it was sort of a mixture of Pryor and, and Woody Allen and, uh, 
you know, some of the older guys. I used to love Jackie Vernon. Oh, I loved him. Yeah. He had a good stick. Yeah, it's just deadpan, the, oh. the slideshow thing. Any of the guys that can do deadpan just, yeah. just kill me. Oh, yeah. There's this New York comic named Mark Norman who was yeah, on yeah. my show last night. Yeah. He can deadpan. He just cracked me up. He's, you know? well, he's the one who used to open for Schumer, right? Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. I know that guy, yeah. But, uh, you know, the I think that that deadpan goes back goes from uh, George uh, Goebel to Tommy Smothers to Steve Martin. All these guys that can deadpan just always Jack kill Benny. me. Jack Benny, oh the the king of it. Yeah, the king yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where Goebel got it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like I like deadpan guys. I like cranks. Yeah, cranks are always good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark Norman's both. Okay. Uh, yeah, he he's really funny. All right, man. Well, you do you always do a great job, and I'm glad we got to talk finally. Well, Mark, it's a pleasure being on your show, man, and. I love you and look forward to working with you every weekend you're in I town. See, I see you every weekend I'm there. All right. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, buddy. Argus Hamilton. There you go. One of the, th- this was like, we're getting, we're getting to the bottom of it. We're getting a lot of the comedy store stories and a lot of the comedy store history. Look, it, it still fascinates me. So, I'm, I'm going to play some guitar. I'm going to tell you to go to WTFPod.com for all those upcoming shows. The Red Cat Theater, the live taping uh, is happening on October 30th. Uh, I've got uh, San Francisco. We've got Nashville. We've got uh, Atlanta. I've got D.C., Boston, and Philly. Uh, all those tickets are available at WTFPod.com slash tour. There's new swag there. Uh, I'm excited. I'm getting a, I didn't do any posters for this tour, and I'm having one done for San Francisco. That's exciting. And I, I've got a new recipe that I invented. Remind me to tell you about it. It's a garam masala hash browns made with purple sweet potatoes. Enough said. I'm going to play with some... Uh, I'm going to play... The, uh, I, I pulled out the gold top. And this is the gold top through an Echoplex straight into the 58 uh, Deluxe. Thank you. 